Morning. My name's Wendell Moses. I'm not Tim Jennings. Tim Jennings is still in Germany. And so, um, welcome. Um, I'm filling in for today. Um, hopefully, the heat and everything else is going well with you. Um, it's um, creating quite a stir at our house. It's just a, a kind of oppressive, but anyway. All right. So, today's lesson number five um, on... Uh, obedience, the fruit of revival. Let's start with a word of prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promise to be here. We ask that you be here and send your spirit. Guide our minds, guide our voices, and guide our hearts. May we be witnesses of your love. May we honor you in what we do and say. And may we be attractive to others that, that you may win others to you as well. Amen. Okay, so um, our memory text is a text that you probably have heard in this class before, except that they used verses 4 and 5. I would like for someone to read the memory verse, but read instead 2 Corinthians 10, 3, 4, and 5. Anyone have their, their Bible open for that? For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Hope I read the right thing. You did. Sounds so different. And you know what? What version are you reading? NIV. NIV. Um, you, you ended with the knowledge of God. Their text, their New King James, ended with obedience to Christ or of Christ. Do you have anything about obedience in your text? No. It was in yeah. no. um, We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. To Christ. It's, it's interesting. Yours says to Christ. The Sabbath school lesson, New King James says of Christ. Does that make a difference? Obedience to Christ or obedience of Christ? Obedience to Christ, you could be obedient to something that he said to do. Okay. Obedience of Christ would be what? You imitate Christ. Okay, so to be obedient like Christ was. Okay, all right. Um, so, the Sabbath school lesson says obedience is the fruit of revival. Obedience to what? Now, we just read to Christ of Christ. When you are obedient, who are you obedient to? A church? The church, universal, a set of doctrines or rules of behavior. Who are you obedient to? You're shaking your head. The laws of God. Which is the law of God. Okay. All right. The the church that I belong to uh, has an acceptable patterns of behavior. Okay. Why do members perform those certain behaviors and avoid other unacceptable behaviors? If the rules weren't there, would the behavior be any different? Some. Some would. I mean, some behaviors would be different. But when you're baptized, it's kind of like this. If you decide to go to a college, and a college has certain rules and regulations... Then you abide by that. If you don't want to abide to go to a college, it doesn't have those rules and regulations. If you're baptized into a church, a denomination, and they have certain, whatever you want to call it, rules or standards, standards, whatever, and you agree to do that, then that's the way it is. But you're not baptized into a relationship with God because you're baptized into a church. Okay. And the reason you do those rules or obey those rules is what? Acceptance by the group. Well, you believe them, he said. Okay. 
Because we are saved, not to be saved. Ah, so that as a result of something, but what I'm hearing is another thing is that there's an external set of rules that you comply with. Okay? So there's kind of two different ideas on why you do something, why you obey something. Okay? Um, the title of the lesson says, Obedience is the Fruit of Revival. If you plant a fruit, what do you get? Fruit? Now, I don't know. I, if I plant an apple, I don't get an apple. Okay? Now, you may get a plant if there's a seed in the fruit, okay? But you don't get another fruit, at least for a long time. Okay, you get a plant. If you go and plant a mushroom, uh, Dr. Nosco is a whatever, what uh, a... Um, biology teacher now, okay? And he, ta- he took me out mushroom hunting. If I go and plant a mushroom, I'm not going to go and I'm not going to get another mushroom. Well, I mean, you know, you'll, you'll get a plant, right? So, if you plant the fruit of obedience, what are you going to get? Can you do that? Can you plant a fruit? Okay? The reason I'm asking this is salvation is described as a fruit. So if you plant obedience, are you going to get salvation? Russell, you're shaking your head. Now, okay, all right. I have to say something right here, and I apologize. I am very name-challenged. Going through medical school, I don't think I did very well, as well as I should have, because I can't remember names. And so, I think I have about three names in this room. Okay? Dr. Norskov, because he was my best man at my wedding many, many years ago. Okay? And I've, and I've heard Russell's name often, so I can get those two names, and that's about it. There's nothing against the rest of you guys. Okay? But, but if I point at... <laughs> No, that's okay. I, I won't remember it anyway. So, um, but just if I point at you, I hope I hope you don't count it as a di- account of disrespect. Uh, I'm name challenged. So anyway, um, so all right. Getting back to the the topic. So if you plant the the fruit of obedience, and there's salvation, which is a fruit. Okay. If you plant one, you I don't think you're going to get the other. Okay. Yes. You know, technically, uh, for, for spiritually speaking, we are branches. We are not plants, and we are not fruit. Um, we're branches. We, we can't do anything if we're not connected into the actual root, which is Christ. Um, and so, anything that we try to plant on our own isn't going to be effective. Well said. Well said. History has shown us that there was a group of people living on the earth that were obedient. To a certain uh, law construct, and they followed all the rules. They they made up rules uh, to support the existing rules. They followed every one of them, and, and yet when God came and, and walked among them, they wanted to kill him. They did kill him. Okay, you know if if you plant um, obedience without having the source of true obedience, you will get something. You will get a fruit. You'll get rebellion. You'll get seeds of rebellion, at least. Okay? Or you'll get stone fruit. Stony heart. Okay? So, reading from um, one of our favorite authors, um, God knows that if we were left to follow our own inclinations, to go just where our will would lead us, we would fall into Satan's lines and become possessors of his attributes. Therefore, the law of God confines us to the will of one who is high and noble and elevating. He desires that we should patiently and wisely take up the duties of service. It is for our present and eternal good to work the works of God. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. Service is looked upon by such a one in the light of drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully and in the love of God in its mere mechanical 
of performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace or quietude to the soul. 12 Manuscript 236. So, um, obedience to the source is important. Um, at the bottom of the second paragraph on Sabbath's lesson, there's a statement about the result of Welsh miners coming to Christ. And the statement says something to the effect of, this truly is the fruit of conversion. I would like to think about revival just a little bit. I know we've been over it for several weeks, but I'd like to uh, think about revival in characters uh, or the characteristics of an individual who undergoes revival versus a nation or group of individuals who undergo revival. One implies that a person is returning or being rejuvenated in their Christian walk. They had a previous Christian experience, and now they are being rejuvenated or renewed by the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't have a nation that undergoes revival without individuals undergoing revival. But many times what we talk about as being revival of a nation is actually conversions. Revival of individuals who then influence their surroundings and who, who the nation... Um, so the whole nation underwent a conversion experience or whatever as, as was experienced in this Welsh revival. So, um, and then they have the fruit of that revival. Anyway, all right. Um, so obedience. I looked up in, in the um, Webster's Dictionary for the definition of obedient. It's submission to the restraint or command of authority. That's one definition. Second definition, the willingness to obey. Okay? And it gives examples. The word actually was not used in English until the 13th century. And uh, then they have synonyms, compliance, conformity, submission, subordination. Antonyms, balkiness, contrariness, words that I can't pronounce. Um, so, what is your emotional response to the word obedience? Punishment if you don't do it. Okay, that's the idea, but what's, what's your, your natural gut reaction to the word obedience? As a kid, it felt very restrictive. Yeah. It's kind of one of those negative words, right? Um, you know, I have an app on my iPad that is word history. Okay, and there's a, also a, a um, you can go to Google and do um, ngram, N-G-R-A-M, and type in any word, and it will tell you over the centuries how, that, how frequently that word has been used, and it will show you on a graph how frequently it's used. So I did that to obedience, obedient, and obey, and compliance, Okay. The, the word obedience was a very frequent word in the 1800 to 1830s. By 1940, it had dropped about a fifth of its previous frequency, and today it's listed as rare. And my office, I take care of children, is extremely rare. <laughs> A recent blogger I was reading online looking for obedience and examples of obedience and everything else. And the, there's a blogger there, and she was a Sunday school teacher, and she says, I have to talk about obedience this week. It's my least favorite word. I mean, isn't that a kind of a, you know, is this a... Okay. Obedience is not expected, especially in the male gendered child. I mean, it, 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 you know, you, I go into exam room and kids are climbing the walls and stuff, and it's, oh, well, he's a guy. You know, what, what, what can you do? You know. It's interesting that obedience was previously included in the bride's wedding vows, but not the groom's. 
I just thought that was interesting. Okay. There's so many divorces, they don't like that word. Yeah. I don't think the guys liked it either, so, you know. All right. Obedience in the dictionary is listed in relationship to three things. Military in response to authority. Religion in response to creed or leaders. And animals in response to dog obedience schools, etc. Okay? I mean, you, you look up, and, then, and that's, that's what they're talking about. It's not ever described in the Christian sense that we're talking about today. It's just unknown. And so we culturally relate to that word obedience, how we relate to one of those three things, those who've been in the military, those who've been, you know, part of a very strict religion that has a creed or rules or whatever. I grew up in a subculture that was very rules-based, and I went to schools that were very rules-based, and we had all sorts of ways of trying to avoid those rules. Those are all opposed law constructs as well. Right. Had nothing to do with this. Right. You know, I mean, my parents would have liked to have had something to do with this, but, you know, generally did not. Graham Maxwell um, wrote a book, um, Servants or Friends, and he described three forms of obedience. I'd like to read you a little bit of this, the book. I apologize for reading, but. He says it succinctly, and I'll get wandering if I don't. Um, If you are a believer and are eager to do what God's will is, would you say, I do what I do because God told me to, and he has the power to reward and destroy? Is this why you don't murder and commit adultery? Because God said you mustn't? Are you saying that you might do it otherwise, but you can't afford to include incur his displeasure. Second second way of, of thinking about obedience. Would you rather say, I do what I do as a believer because God has told me to, and I love him and want to please him? Is this why you don't steal or tell lies? You see nothing wrong or harmful about doing these things. It's just that you want so much to please God, for some reason he does not like it when you steal or lie, and since he's been given, been so generous, you feel under some obligation to please him. It would only be grateful and fair. I will have to admit that, admit that in my Christian journey, for a long time I could not figure out why lies were so dangerous. I thought, you know, you know, in the Bible it says lies are out in the, in the those who are cast out in Revelation and stuff, and it's like, What's wrong? I mean, if it's just secret and, you know, no one ever finds out about it, what's so wrong with it? It's only come some understanding of what lies does to your heart that I have a different idea. Okay? All right. That's type two obedience. Type three obedience. There's another possible approach to obedience. Could you say this? I do what I do because I have found it to be right and sensible to do so. And I have increasing admiration and reverence for the one who so advised and commanded me in the days of my ignorance and immaturity. And being still somewhat ignorant and immature, I am willing to trust and obey the one whose counsel has always proved to be so sensible. When he tells me to do something beyond my present understanding. Often, what we are portrayed in our Christian walk or Christian books and everything else, is type two, obedience. <laughs> Further on in this chapter, he talks about a dog that they had that loved to eat flowers out of their, their hibiscus plant. And the dog learned that it made the owners unhappy when he ate the flowers. And so if the owners were present, or the dog thought that the person was coming right back, it would sit in front of the hibiscus plant and not eat the flowers. And then, when it was sure that it was no, the owner was not coming back, you'd go over and eat the flowers. Except that somehow they would look through the windows or something and spy the dog eating the flowers, and then they would reappear and punish them for the, for the eating the flowers. That is so much the God construct that 
I grew up with, you know? That God is looking through a a magic window, and I can't see him, but he can see me, and he's coming back at any moment to um, get me for not obeying. But what's wrong with a combination of two and three? In other words, I feel like today I believe more of three, but yet still I don't want to displease God. Number two, I don't want to displease God. I mean, it's not, I don't do what I do because, I mean, I don't want to do wrong because I know doing wrong is bad for me, okay? But then again, I don't want to displease God either. Well, and included in that last statement, um, I am willing to trust and obey the one whose counsel has always proved to be so sensible when he tells me to do something beyond my present understanding. Okay? And so, yes. It seems to me that maybe it's a growth issue. Uh, when children are young, they need that first concept of obedience. Don't yeah. Think? yeah. How do you keep them from running in the street? And, and maybe new Christians need the first concept. Every summer, it's my job to take care of people who do not have restraint. They're little people. And because they don't have restraint, they do things that get them into trouble. They ride their bicycle into cars they, or get hit by cars. They get run over by lawnmowers or whatever because they have not experienced restraint. And those are the things I hate the most because sometimes it's devastating, the, the things that you inherit because they don't have restraint. And so the laws, as you describe, are there for our benefit when we don't know better. Okay? Um, Christ Object Lessons. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he's required to do so will never enter the joy of obedience. He does not obey. Wait a minute. He did. He really doesn't. When the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across human inclination, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This will lead us to do right because it is right and because right doing is pleasing to God. So it is both. Okay? All right. Let's turn to Sunday's lesson. The um, first two paragraphs um, talks about the transformed life, and it results in a changed life. In the second paragraph, the results of revival are not necessarily positive feelings. They are a changed life. Our feelings are not the fruit of revival. Obedience is. This is evident in the lives of the disciples after Pentecost. Any questions about that? Yeah. You know, when you read about the disciples, you, hear, you read a lot about them rejoicing, um, you know, praying, praising. So to say that there's no positive, that there's not necessarily positive stuff that comes from revival, I would say isn't exactly true. But I, I know what they're trying to say is yeah. that you don't depend on your feelings, but yeah. the, the truth is, if you're close to God, and you're growing closer, your feelings will follow. Okay. I, I thought a, 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 one additional word would help us there. Only. Yes. Yeah. Okay? So positive feelings are not only result from revival. But it was definitely present in my life when I, you know, listen to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. When I don't listen to the Holy Spirit, I definitely have some disequilibrium, some not-so-positive feelings. Okay? All right. Turning to Monday's lesson, could someone read for me the second paragraph, the infilling of the Holy Spirit? The infilling of the Holy Spirit led the disciples to live unselfish, godly lives. Their faith led them to obedience. At times, the spiritual warfare was fierce, but Jesus, their Savior and Lord, was by their side to strengthen their faith. They were stoned, imprisoned, burned at the stake, and shipwrecked. Their obedience also often came with an unusually high price. Many of the disciples suffered a martyr's death. Okay. 
They're talking about spiritual warfare. If I go back and read the memory text and talk about spiritual warfare, is the spiritual warfare visible? No. Okay. Is it external? No. Okay. So this class has made spiritual warfare a lot more visible. Just because of the concepts that that we've brought up and we've learned, it makes me very aware when I hear in music even or in sermons or in other things, the concepts that put themselves up against the knowledge of God where I would have been unaware before. You know, and just listening to you say that, I think of Christ's statement, he that has ears, let him hear. You know? Because that is not a normal perception that we have without the Spirit. Okay? Um, In talking about this external versus internal and whatnot, um, I think the difference is between our discussion also we've had between sin and sins. We often spend all our time fighting sins. When we need to fight sin... And um, sin is estrangement from God. And if we take care of that, sins will take care of themselves. Okay? And this, um, this spiritual warfare thing, if we take care of the inside, whatever's on the outside will take care of itself. We may not have things that we like. We may inherit from outside surfaces things, but that's not our spiritual warfare. Our spiritual warfare is not about what's going on the outside. So, um, in Desire of Ages, page 330, in the heart of Christ, where reigned perfect harmony with God, there was perfect peace. He was never elated by applause, nor nor dejected by censure or disappointment. Amid the greatest opposition and the most cruel treatment, he was still of good courage. But many who profess to be his followers have an anxious and troubled heart because they are afraid to trust themselves with God. As Tim has said many times, they we're afraid to trust outcomes. Okay? We're always trying to manipulate outcomes. They do not make a complete surrender to him, for they shrink from the consequences that such a surrender may involve. Unless they do make the surrender, they cannot find peace. It is the love of self that brings unrest. When we are born from above, the same mind will be in us that was in Jesus, the mind that led him to humble himself that we might be saved. Then we shall not be seeking the highest place. We shall desire to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn of him. We shall understand that the value of our work does not consist in making a show and noise in the world and in being active and zealous in our own strength. The value of our work is in proportion to the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Trust in God brings holier qualities of mind so that in patience we may possess our souls. I'm amazed by the previous statement that said, He was never elated by applause nor dejected by censure or disappointment. Those are external. That's not where our battle is. Okay? Um, Reading the last paragraph on Monday's lesson, um, the last half of that paragraph, it says, it's not out of the realm of possibility that someone, reading these words, and they're talking about um, what's happened to the apostles, right now will one day have to give up his or her life in the cause of the Lord. Why? Is that because they're disobedient? Well, disobedient to whom or to what? Okay? So, anyway. All right. Tuesday's lesson. Um... The bottom paragraph on Tuesday's lesson, there's a highlight thing. I don't know what color it is in your, you know, 
gadget or um, book or whatever. Try to put yourself in the position of Paul after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. What a shock to him. Also try to put yourself in Ananias' position. What a shock it must have been to him as well. What do these accounts teach us about the ways in which we may be called by God, by the Lord, to face and do things that at the time we don't understand? Why, though, must we obey the Lord regardless? If we don't understand something, how do we know we're supposed to do it? Now, the story is referencing Paul's conversion or whatever on the road to Damascus, his Damascus experience, okay? And the subsequent visit by Ananias to lay his hands on him for healing. Um, How did Ananias know what he was asked to do? Because God spoke to him. God spoke to him. I had a dream last night. I had a dream about lifting a body up with a magic gadget that was moving it around. <laughs> well, actually, I, I'm trying to figure out how to do something with someone's body, and I and I wish I could have this magic gadget. But um, I- anyway, um, how did Ananias know? He recognized God's voice. He recognized God's voice. Okay. He also had evidence, had prior evidence of the trustworthiness of God. And even though he he, he questioned God, is this? He said, "Is this not the same Saul that uh, mm-hmm. has been persecuting Christians?" You know, well, what are you asking? Yeah. The Lord says, "I have chosen him." Yeah, he had enough of a relationship to question. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. How long did it take Paul to come to a position where he was willing? For someone to lay his hands on his eyes. Three days. Three days. Okay? I don't know when Ananias was approached by God to go there. It may have taken him three days. That's true. Okay? When... um, When Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac, it says he got up immediately and left, okay? But that was 20 years later. He had been through a long... Here's a guy who had actually talked face-to-face to God and heard his voice. He'd been walking with God since that time. And I think um, if I had someone come in my dream and tell me to do something, I need to severely question that unless it doesn't, unless it matches exactly with God's word. Okay. Um, even Paul, when he had this conversion experience, he he told um, Agrippa in um, Acts twenty six nineteen. Um, I did not prove disobedient to the vision, but he was not given the whole spectrum of what he was supposed to do. The Spirit still had to tell him, Paul, don't go there. Paul, I need you over here. So, just because we've had a magical experience or we have heard the voice of God does not mean we have the complete story that we need to do. Um How soon after Paul's conversion did Paul do what God asked him to do? Anyone know the story? So what did he do immediately after his conversion? Did he go out in the wilderness? Uh, He went and preached in that town. Went to the synagogue and preached. What happened? Remember the basket story? He was in the town, he was preaching, he got, he, the, the, everyone got so upset at him that they clamped down the walls and said, okay, he's, he's not going to leave here, we're going to kill him. And then he was let down with a basket, right? So then he went to Jerusalem and started preaching, got in trouble there, and then what did he do? 
then the believers actually send him away. The believers sent him away. He said, go away. <laughs> Get out of here. Okay? Now, Paul had been given a vision that you are to go to my people, and I'm going to protect you. Don't worry, you won't get hurt. And you're going to the Gentiles. And he went to the people, and they went to Jerusalem, and both places, they threw him out. Where did he go? What's the the next part of Paul's story? He went to the wilderness and studied for, what, two years, three years? And then he ended up where? Where do you go from there? Where's the next time we, we see Paul? He's in Tarsus. What happened is the, the leaders of the church heard about a group of, of individuals of new Christians who were being raised in, I think it was Ephesus. Maybe it's Antioch. No, it's Antioch. And so they said, okay, we need to get some help down there. We need to send a preacher down there. You know, what does the church do? They hear a good thing, they get a preacher to go there. So, um, so they, they sent a preacher there, Barnabas. Barnabas got there and said, whoa, we need some help. And he went looking for Paul, and he found him at Paul's hometown of Tarsus as a tent maker. This is after Paul had been given this wonderful vision and guarantee of protection and direction on what he's supposed to do. How many of you have had a direct path in your life? I hear, I see some people here who are younger than me and some people who are older than me. Okay? Those of you who are older than me, have you had a direct path in your life that was just a straight and narrow path. If you have, I'd like to talk to you sometime because I, I need to figure it out. Um, but even Paul, after his direction, did not have a straight path. Okay? All right. Enough of that. Um, Thursday's lesson. Uh, let's see. Thursday's lesson. Where are we? Someone read the third paragraph. Jesus was a servant. Jesus was a servant to the Father's will. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus provides an example of what a life filled with the Holy Spirit is like. It is a life of a willing obedience and humble submission to the Father's will. It is a prayerful life devoted to service and ministry, a life consumed with a passionate desire to see others saved in the Father's kingdom. What is the definition of seeking the best for another? Love. Love. Okay? That paragraph describes what love is. Okay? So if we have the Holy Spirit, if we have the fruit of the Spirit, you know, we will have more than just obedience to something, we will have love, which is the ultimate obedience. Okay? Um, all right. Um, there's more about slavery in there, and I, uh, we won't get there. Um, let's move on. Friday's lesson, okay? I'd like to go to, to um, the Friday's lesson to the discussion questions, okay? Some ple- someone please read to me Acts 5, 1 to 11. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And his wife's full knowledge of, with his wife's full knowledge he kept back a part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and you have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? 
What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. A great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. That would increase our offerings quite a bit <laughs> if, we, uh, if we had something similar happen to our church. But just reading through the Friday's, les- Friday's lesson, it says, read Acts 5, 1 through 11. We've done that. What can we learn from this powerful and to some degree frightful story? Don't lie to God. Okay. Don't lie to God. Why do you think they face such dire consequences for their actions? It was a new and fragile church, and they needed this kind of direction. Okay. All right. What does this... I'm sorry. Well, my first question is, can we draw any conclusions about... Uh, can we draw any parallels about what might happen to the wicked in the end when they are confronted by the truth of their own character, their own behavior, their <clears throat> their lack of conformity with God's natural law, um, and what, what's going to happen to them uh, versus what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? Will there be any parallels? Maybe so. Yeah. Certainly a lesson in obedience. I was going to ask that question. Um, obedience. How does this relate to obedience? Promise to do something and you don't do it. I don't think so. Who, who, who were they disobedient to? Were, did, was, there ever, was there a rule that said they had to sell their property? Was there a rule that said if you sold your property, you had to give all of it to the church? Okay. So who were they disobedient to? To themselves. Maybe to the Holy Spirit. I don't know. Maybe they were convicted or felt convicted to... You know, to, to do this, I mean, other people had been doing this type of thing from time to time. Right. You know, people right. would sell it and get it. There right. was nobody mm-hmm. in need. Right. There was plenty for everyone. Right. So maybe they felt the need to do that from, I don't know, from the Holy Spirit, perhaps. And, and they were trying to get almost more bang for their buck, in a way. You know, get the appreciation and the honor, the glory from people for what they were doing, but yet at the same time still have a little spending money in their pockets. So what does this have to do with obedience? It has nothing to do with obedience. The lesson implies that because they did this, God smote them down. But it doesn't say that. It actually just says that they died. Which, which goes back to Russell's point about, yeah. you know. Yeah, and, you know, again... There was, there was nothing that said, you must do this. But they saw other people doing it, and so they decided to do that, but then they decided to keep something for themselves, which implies that there is this selfish motivation, which when faced with the truth, caused their death. Or perhaps, perhaps even their motivation for selling the property was, mm-hmm. was selfish, selfish, not only to keep some money for themselves, but yeah. to, uh, like she mentioned, you know, receive... Uh, so no worthy praise from the mm-hmm. from the fellow believers. Look what they did. They sold that piece of property and they gave it all to the Lord. Yeah, and and I would actually argue that it wasn't that it wasn't God's work 
to kill them because the result was fear. And God doesn't work that way. Um, you know, he, we might misinterpret him and then be afraid. So the text says the whole church and everyone else who heard about what happened were terrified. Yeah. Does that sound like God working? But Peter did predict that she was going to get carried out. So that seems like it's more than just, you know, she dropped dead. He predicted it. That's right. The flags were predicted too. You know, the ones that are coming um, in Revelation. And that's... God's withdrawal, I mean... Is that that foreknowledge a causative agent? No. Okay? That's... No, thank you. Okay. I'm I'm sitting up a hill, and I'm what... Now, I I don't want to portray God's foreknowledge totally like this, but I'm sitting up the hill, and I'm up here at community churches, driving with parking lot, whatever, walking my dog or whatever, and I look down the hill, and I see a kid on a scooter or whatever, you know, going down the, the hill. And I see a car coming, all right? I can see the car, but the kid can't because of those, you know, st- that stuff there, okay? I know what's going to happen. Did I cause that? Okay? Did Peter's foreknowledge that this lady was going to fall over dead... Cause this. Well, perhaps by the evidence of what happened to her husband. I mean, he, he didn't predict her husband's death, but he saw saw Ananias fall over dead and, and reasonably concluded that because she was complicit in the scheme, that the same thing would happen to her. Yeah, but just because my husband dies of a heart attack doesn't not want you to right. in the next hour. It does. <laughs> Unless you That's true. Okay. Okay. Uh, 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 back of the room. Do we know at all that there was or was not a vow or a pledge involved from the two people? Well, it. it um. In, in my version, in brackets, it says they had pledged. Okay. Okay. Now, I don't know where those brackets came from. I don't know where that verbiage came from. Is that in some text that was not, you know, uh, you know how, how certain versions have um, part of it. It says they agreed to hold back some of the money they had pledged and turned only part of it over to the apostles. That's verse 2. Okay. Yes. At the very end of chapter 4, um, before we get to that story, it said the believers were united in heart and mind, and they shared everything they had. So it seems like that it was knowledge that they all had that they shared. And it said there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So it was already expected of them. Yeah. You, you think this is coercion, a group, group of coercion that uh, everyone had to do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, it says they were united in heart and mind. They were supposed heart. to be. That's what it okay. says. All right. It's uh, verse 32 of chapter 4 of Acts. So you think they were disobeying... Their own pledge. Their own pledge or the group think or... Well, it's like they belong to this club and they all agreed that this is what they would do. The group was taken care of, so they would sell their land and bring the money in, and then it was distributed as the group felt best. That's how I see it. Okay. If, if Ananias and Sapphira had said, oh, yeah, we did keep back some of that money, uh, I wonder if they would have perished. Well, you know, I think it goes back to what... Um, Peter said, when it was in your, your control, 
you could have given whatever you wanted. You could have given $1, you could have given 10%, you could have given 30%, you could have given the whole thing. Whatever it was, it's in your control, but they are presenting a lie to both the group as well as to the Holy Spirit. And he said, you, you can't lie to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows this. What do you think you are? Etc. My this, question, this story has lots of, of fear associated with it, you know, which bothers me a little bit. But also, I wanted to point to something in that I was having a hard time when I went through the week's lesson. I came to the, the, the lesson, the, in the lesson, I got through all obedience. And I got to this question, it's like, what does this have to do with obedience? You know? Well, I, I just, I just had this question, of, you know, and bad thoughts about the editors, uh, um, including this, into my lesson on obedience, because what does it do? It generates fear regarding obedience. Okay. All, all. So far during this whole lesson, we've obedience is the heart. Obedience is the heart. Obedience is the heart, and then. Yeah, bam. <laughs> That's what she said. She said to bam. You know, it's right. It's like, better watch out because if you don't obey, bam. That has nothing to do with obedience. Obedience has to do with a fruit. Okay? And going back to the original statement, if we plant a fruit expecting salvation, we're planting in the wrong field. Or some analogy or metaphor or whatever those things are. You know, so um, it just, you know, it, it just bothered me a little bit that this was here and that we read this through. And if anyone's reading this lesson, I would like to disavow that I would like that that story to be excised out of the quarterly. You know, it, to me, it doesn't have anything to do with obedience except to my own conscience. Okay. Am I obeying what my, the Holy Spirit is telling me? And you guys are not going to know a single thing about that. Okay, unless it so damages my life that I turn turn into a person that you don't see Christ in. Yes. Well, no. The the part that I see that does have applicability is if in that revival that occurred in Acts, it was that realization of the incredible character of love of God demonstrated in Christ that won folks' hearts. So it was that deep, unselfish love that was what permeated that community. And so it was that sharing out of that heart of unselfish love of, there's a need, I have a resource, I would be so glad to help and give it. With that being the base community mindset and that, that connection with Christ's character and God's character, to have the toxin and potential complete destruction of that selfishness re-entered into the community. That's the only part of which the, the having the source of obedience in one's heart as being that unselfish love base versus the selfish motivation that appeared to be of Ananias and Sapphira. That's the only part that I see. That is I'm converted, okay? So they were breaking a law. The law of love. Okay? But that's... It's only by having an inspired statement to that effect that I recognize that they're disobedient. You know? And, and thank you for that because all week I've been struggling with this thing. I've come to the end of this lesson. I think, you know, I've, what law have they disobeyed? Well, they disobeyed the law of love. Okay? But I will have to go back and say the law of love... When you disobey it, is a natural law, and you may fall over dead, but it's not God who killed you. I grew up with an entirely different take on this story. I remember, and it was in an Adventist church, a pastor telling us of this story, and that Ananias and Sapphira had made a promise about this land. And the conclusion of that story was, don't make promises to God that you cannot or will not keep. That's how that came out. And it wasn't or he'll get you. Huh? Or he'll get you. Or, yeah. 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 
Um, yeah, I just wanted to point out that, that actually throughout this lesson this week, there was kind of an emphasis on the obedience as opposed to the change inside, the, the, the change in heart, the love for God that changes you and moves you that direction. You know, it, it kept talking about the cost of obedience. It's not in the Bible. You, you have to um, understand that I missed reading a lot to this, of this um, thing to you today, you know, the, the quarterly. You know, I had to pass over certain sections that were, um, 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 yeah. I, I just couldn't pass over this last one, though, where, you know, that it's like hitting you over the head with, you know, obedience, obedience. And then it's like, wait a minute. But truly, it is a law of love. Okay, so I, I agree. It belongs in the lesson, but maybe not the way it's portrayed. Yes. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yes. God is always more concerned with our motives. That's always his primary concern. Where, where it's coming from, what we do, where that's coming from. Well, I, I learned something last year that I was not aware of. Um, a, Good. A friend that I made uh, from the Mormon church shared some things with me that I thought were just amazing. And maybe they got their principles from this story where uh, the early church helped one another. Mm-hmm. I was just in amazement. Um, they don't, at this particular parish, uh, when they built their church here on Udawa Ringgold Road, they had no debt whatsoever. They don't build until they can totally pay for something. And all their members... Um, they're nurtured so that they never have to take welfare. So nobody takes any welfare from the government. And when they have someone that's ill in the parish, um, all the members come and assist and aid. They take them to all their appointments. It doesn't matter what is going on. If they're not able to take care of themselves, the, the church surrounds their members and really helps in every way. And I was just amazed and thought it was amazing. I have lived in a Adventist community that did the same thing. And so, um, you know, my... That's okay. I won't tell that story. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that is a Christian value, okay? And I don't know that it's a church value. It's a, it's a Christian value. And I would encourage, you know others to um, to share that and, and why we do it. Uh, just one parting thing. Um, we're getting close to the end. and it, um, In the discussion question uh, number three, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. In class, talk about the implications of those fateful words. And again, it's adding fear and, and doom, and etc. But I just wanted to, to finish with, is Christianity an intellectual decision? Do we use our intellect to commit to God? Is that what keeps us with God? Is the power of choice not part of your intellect? Ah, it's part, okay? But I think it goes back to a, our relationship with God. And, and I have some statements, which if you read the notes that will be online or whatever, um, intellectual assent to, to God alone is worthless. Okay? It's a relationship. And, and relationship. It's a it's a wholeness. It involves intellect. It involves emotion. Yes. It involves it, heart. It involves choice, involves intellect, and yes, I don't think that we should be doing things that don't make sense, etc. But it's more than just an intellectual decision of, yes, this is all the evidence. I agree with the evidence and whatnot. And I have been part of evangelistic programs in my ch- local church at times in which people were brought into the church on intellectual grounds who never were introduced to Christ. And I would encourage us as we go out to others, this is all about God and his law of love. And that's what converts the soul. It's by beholding we become changed. You know. And obedience is from the heart because we have become changed. 
It's not a set of rules that I'm trying to fit into, although the devil still talks to me every week about what I'm doing wrong. Okay? So, anyway, let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, your spirit, and those that are around us that encourage us in our walk. May we honor you this week. Be with Tim and his family. Be with others that are not here. May we walk with you. May we be able to be examples of your love to those around us. Amen.